Second Chronicles chapter 1, our journey through the scriptures on Sunday night. And if you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just wave to them, they'll get one into your hands. And on the Sunday evenings, we try to cover a little bit of territory, a number of chapters. And without a Bible, you'll uh, be fairly lost. So just get one. As we uh, come now to Second Chronicles, having uh, completed First Chronicles a couple of weeks ago, it is basically a continuation of the chronology of uh, Israel's history, the spiritual lessons associated with it. Uh, originally, uh, there was no First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. It was the Book of Chronicles. But it was divided for the sake of uh, easiness. Otherwise, you'd have 185 chapters in the, you know, the book of Chronicles. I'm being a little uh, facetious on that, but it would be quite large. And so it was divided into two first Chronicles for the most part, having to do with the reign of David and ending, as we saw last time, with just absolutely dominated by the one great desire uh, of David's heart at the end of his life. Uh, to build another palace. No, that's not what he was concerned about or any physical thing. His great love and desire uh, and concern was the building of the temple, even though he wouldn't get to build it. And so now we head in to the book of Second Chronicles, which picks things up at, after David's death with his son Solomon now becoming the king. And the great event concerning Solomon's reign was the building of the temple. And uh, so it, we start to move related to that. And the book of Second Chronicles covers a period of about 427 years. And it is a uh, record from the time of Solomon, David's son, all the way, mostly a record of the southern kingdom of Judah, all the way through to their Babylonian captivity. And so, uh, so we begin. In chapter 1, verse 1, we're told that now Solomon... The son of David was strengthened in his kingdom and the Lord God was with him and exalted him exceedingly. Now, you could hardly have a uh, more seamless transition of a kingdom than the transition between King David and his son Solomon. I mean, there was uh, David had made very clear this was the son that was to follow him as king and it had been demonstrated before the nation. A lot of things had been taken care of so that that. There wouldn't be major upheaval within the land or any idea that they could, you know, make somebody else king or something like that. And so it was very, very seamless. But any transition, I don't care whether uh, it's kings in the Old Testament or a transition of leadership within a church or something, no matter how seamless it is, there is always a transition that is involved. And Solomon had to take care of a few issues in order to uh, settle in and begin to focus on the building of the temple. I'm sure he would have liked to have done it immediately, but there are a few details he had to take care of, a few complications. Not everyone was excited over the fact that uh, Solomon was the new king of Israel. One of his brothers, Adonijah, was not excited about the fact. In fact, prior to David's death, he had tried to produce kind of a coup when David was in his ill health. He took advantage of his father's old age to try and assemble some leaders to himself to kind of take the, the uh, king, the reign by force. And David was made aware of it uh, by Nathan and others. And he then made Solomon the king and made it apparent to the entire nation. So uh, Solomon showed great restraint to Adonijah, told him, listen, what you've been guilty of against me is high treason, really, but I'm going to let you live as long as you're a good boy. Uh, well, he wasn't a good boy. He then went to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, and tried to arrange for his marriage to Abishag, some of you remember, who was a concubine of David. She, they never had physical relations with one another. She was just kind of a very young, beautiful um, uh, Electric blanket uh, in those days, better circulation and all that. And he was cold and old. And he couldn't get warm and it gets cold in Jerusalem an awful lot of the year. So so he 
uh, he thought if I marry her as a concubine of my father, then I will have an inside track to even though Solomon's been made king to usurp him uh, as the king. And ultimately he was executed by Solomon for his high treason. Joab was still a problem, one of David's David's general and a, a great man in many regards, but he was guilty of murder and the shedding of innocent blood. And David demanded that uh, in accordance with the law of Moses, despite his position, despite his uh, this great historical figure in many uh, respects, he violated the law, the innocent blood. It would have been upon the leadership of Israel and the nation of Israel if it had not been dealt with. God is no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter if it's a president or a king or a pauper or whoever. I'm not going to sing for you. Uh, but the, the law of Moses was supposed to be uh, applied to them. And so Joab had to be taken care of. I think it's a wonderful lesson, especially for those of you, all of us, but especially for those of you who are younger. And Solomon is very young here. He's certainly no older than 20 years old. So here he becomes the king of the most most important nation in human history and the most important nation in the world at that time. The most important nation in the world because it is that nation and through those people that God had promised that he would bring a savior, a Messiah into the world. It was through the Jewish people that he uh, gave us the gift of Jesus and the salvation that's found in him. So with Solomon here, I mean, he's He's about as green as a kid can be. David knew that about him, but there's only one way to get experience, and he's going to get experience very, very quickly. But he gets put into place. Everybody's not happy about it. Very, very powerful people are opposed to him. And yet we're told here that the Lord his God was with him and exalted him exceedingly. I've seen something again, over and over again in, in my Christian life and in Christian service. And it's important for younger people to Uh, recognize this as an encouragement. I have seen many, many times a calling on a younger person's life. It's very, very evident. God is calling them to do a particular thing, to head some kind of a thing up, to take some step of faith, only to find them opposed in some way by those that are in power and, and what's been, uh, you know, kind of the position that they have. And, and time after time after time, I have seen as that younger person has stayed faithful to God's calling that God has taken care of all of the obstacles. God will take care of all the enemies. He will defend you. He will cause you to prosper in your ministry as as we just are faithful to what he has called us to do. God had called Solomon to be the king of Israel. And God would have to clean up uh, some, take care of some details to accomplish that. But he would do that. And I would hate to see any young person, whether whatever position or step of faith that you're taking in your life, if you come up against, oh, no, this person is the head of this and this person is the head of that and this person is the head of this. They're all against me. I have no chance. You just stay in your seat. You just stay in the cockpit. You just keep moving forward and you watch God take care of all of those things. He knows how to protect his called, and he knows how to protect and develop his anointing that he's placed upon people. And God did that wonderfully for Solomon. I wish Solomon had been more careful with it related to his life, but that's another story, and we'll talk about that uh, later. And so Solomon then, brand new king, he spoke to all of Israel and to the captains of thousands and of hundreds and to the judges and to every leader in all of Israel, the heads of the father's houses. So he speaks to great and common and, and small and everyone. And he has uh, something that he wants to do with them. And then Solomon and all the assembly went him, with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon for the tabernacle of meeting with God was there, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. But David had brought up the Ark of the Covenant from Kirjath-Jerim to the place David had prepared for it, that tent that he had pitched for it in Jerusalem, and now the bronze altar uh, that uh, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, he put before the tabernacle of the Lord. Solomon and the assembly sought the Lord there. Here is Solomon, and he 
goes to worship the Lord at a place called Gibeon, about six miles northwest of Jerusalem. And he calls all of the great leaders of the land, the common people of the land, whoever wants to join him for this great assembly. And what he wants to do is you remember his father, David, began his reign. The first thing that David wanted to do that was on his heart was to bring the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God, into Jerusalem to bring the presence of God symbolically back into the national life of the nation of Israel. He wanted to honor God in that way. Solomon is going to mess up, and there's reasons that he messes up, and there's a lot of lessons in that. But in the beginning, he was very much like his father. He was a deeply spiritual young man. Uh, and But his desire was the same as his father. Here I am beginning this reign, and I want to begin this reign uh, before the Lord by acknowledging the Lord. So he brings everybody, great and small, over to this uh, uh, city here of Gibeon, where the tabernacle from the, uh, that had been modeled from the time of Moses, we're talking about a significant length of time, all that kind of worship, all of the furnishings associated with the tabernacle, all of them were there in, uh, uh, in Gibeon. And only the Ark of the Covenant was, uh, was not there because David had brought it to Jerusalem. And so he wants to begin his reign by acknowledging God as the great God of the nation. He wants to honor the Lord with uh, sacrifices. And so uh, this is what they go there, the purpose that they go there for. I do like the mention here. Uh, as is, uh, mention is made, let's see. Mm-hmm, 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 yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now I know it's in one of these four verses. So how can it disappear on me? There it is, verse five. Happens to you too. I'm glad. It talks about Bezalel, and we remember him. Here he is being mentioned all the way back from the time of Moses. And so here is this altar that he had made. He's a great craftsman, a great worker in metal that God had anointed to build some of these furnishings. That great altar is still in use there. And uh, his name is mentioned. And I always like the mention of Bezalel and the others that were raised up to actually build and create the physical furnishings and the tabernacle itself. You know, I, I like... I like what the elders do. I like what the teachers, I like what the Levites do. I like what the priests do. I like that whole spiritual angle of things. But I also like people that can work with their hands and pull this stuff off that God wants uh, to have made that all speak of God and they speak of Christ. And so here's this, what I think, and one of the reasons I like it, I'm a blue-collar guy through and through all my life. Uh, so I like this whole... You, Honoring of that side of things, people with that kind of gift that can take something that is on the heart of God and recreate it physically. And not everybody has that gift. Uh, not everybody can do what the priest did, but the priest couldn't do uh, what uh, Bezalel did. And so I always appreciate the fact that God honors that kind of uh, person. So they went up there. Solomon went. Uh, verse 6, up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tabernacle of meeting, and they offered on that altar a thousand burnt offerings. Now, that's a lot of burnt offerings. Uh, a burnt offering, again, as we mention every so often, pretty regularly, in fact, because it was one of the most regular offerings that the children of Israel offered to the Lord. Uh, in fact, they offered it to the Lord every morning and evening. The burnt offering was unique as an offering in that the animal was slain and then the animal was placed on the altar and it was burned entirely. And so what it represented to the person that was making that offering, it represented, God, I'm giving you my life completely. It belongs to you. It's fully surrendered to you. And so that's what they're doing. Here is the whole nation, Solomon, all of the leaders. He's beginning his reign in this very dramatic way, a thousand burnt offerings. Even when you're a king like he is, that's still a, a couple of quarters out of your pocket to do that. And so here is this great demonstration. God, we surrender to you. We surrender to your purposes. The nation of Israel became what it became under David and under his leadership. But that David is now gone and he has run his race well. Now we want to run in, with a similar consecration and surrender to you. And so it was this physical event, but it was communicating something spiritual in their heart 
uh, to the Lord, which was the way all of the sacrifices uh, were. And so in the New Testament, it's interesting that when Paul writes to the Romans, famous verse, Romans chapter 12, verse one, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice uh, holy, which is acceptable to God, and that that's our reasonable service. And the idea there is of a, a burnt offering, that there is a point in time, yes, we can offer our lives to the Lord in consecration or surrender to him on a daily basis. We do that. But there is to be in every person's life, and preferably at the moment of conversion, that complete surrender to God. Where it is, God, my life is yours 100% completely. My life is a living sacrifice. As somebody noted, the problem with living sacrifices that you don't have with dead sacrifices is that they can squirm off of the altar. And Solomon is going to squirm off of the altar. But the idea is that each of us should have a place, preferably at conversion, where our life is fully surrendered to the Lord. But that isn't true of everyone. Sometimes people, uh, they'll become a Christian And they still got all these other agendas they want to do and all. And so their life isn't fully surrendered to him. And then they'll make that surrender a little bit later, usually after a little bit of pain uh, of realizing God is smarter than me and uh, and his plan is better than my plan. And so they come to the point of surrender. The main thing is that it happens. If you sit here tonight and you haven't settled the issue, that's the way I like to put it, settled the issue of Jesus's lordship in your life, then that's what you need to do. And that's how they were beginning the reign here. And it was very, very commendable. And uh, and the Lord uh, loved it. And so the Lord then spoke to Solomon, verse seven, uh, on that night of that great event, God appeared to Solomon. And we know from uh, the book of Kings that this occurred in the form of a dream. So some God can speak through dreams. Um, not all dreams are from God. Let's be quick to add that. Uh, but sometimes, you know, sometimes I have weird dreams. Let's just do a little dream therapy here. On stuff. But sometimes, you know, you'll have a dream that will scare you to death. Like, you know, you punch somebody out or something, and here you are, a pastor, and you're arrested and all, or whatever. You know, whatever goofy thing. Or the one where you're running away from the bear that's chasing you, but you're stuck in mud and you can't run, and it can run freely in the mud. But somehow it doesn't catch you all night long that you're having the dream. Uh, you get to struggle. Seems like all night long, but I guess they tell us it's just a couple of minutes long. Enough about my problems, really. This is... But we have, but there can be things where sometimes I have felt like the Lord has opened my eyes up or warned me about a situation or to be careful in a situation by virtue of something that's happened in a dream. So he can do that kind of thing. And he, so this is a, well, let's get off of me. Let's go to legitimate, you know, the Lord gives Solomon revelation here in the form of a dream. And so he appeared to the Lord, the Lord appeared to Solomon and he said to him, ask, what shall I give to you? And so that's the question that the Lord asks of Solomon. Great question. You look at that. Ask, what shall I give to you? Interesting question. And it's good just to take a moment just to step back. It's a very powerful place in the Bible. Step back and ask myself, if God were to ask me that question and give me this invitation to ask anything of him, What in the world would I ask of him? Don't shout it out. What would I ask? Everyone would ask for something. Someone might ask, well, I would would ask for a new car. My car's about broken. I would ask for a boyfriend or a girlfriend or fiancé or something like that, a spouse, someone to marry or whatever it might be. Everybody would answer this question in in some kind of, of a response. If we respond in our minds, you, you say, if God came to you and he just said, all right, ask, what do you want? I'll give it to you. You formulate your answer there. If we respond to that invitation by God, by asking for something purely physical, as opposed to something spiritual, it would reveal that our thinking has been fashioned With the idea that the most valuable thing that we could receive from God in life would be something physical or material. Now, I think about myself and I don't want to put myself like in some kind of a place of voice. Boy, you sure got me because I was thinking car all the way or whatever it might be. 
But that's the purpose of the passage, to really get us to rethink. We live in a very materialistic society, and we, we are even fashioned by the society to think that our greatest needs are material needs. If any of us were to answer this question by asking for a material thing, it means we really need to step back and reconsider with God what is really valuable in this life. And what's really valuable in this life has nothing to do with the material supremely. It has to do with the spiritual. And as we're going to see in a moment, if the spiritual priorities are are right in our life, God is going to take care of all of the physical uh, priorities and needs that we have in our life. God will never take a person, a Christian, who has their head screwed on straight spiritually, where he's invested great, great things in terms of godly character in their life, experience in their life, calling upon their life, and, and then not in provide them with the physical things that they need to be successful in that ministry that God has called them to. But it's good, and I don't want to do, didn't want to do this as like a guilt gotcha kind of thing, but is an exhortation to my own heart supremely, but to all of our hearts to step back. And if I would have asked for something physical, then I'm thinking like the world and I'm not thinking kingdom wise. And Solomon here at this point in his life is thinking very, very much a kingdom of, of, of God wise in his response that he gives to the Lord. And notice what Solomon said then to the Lord. Solomon said to God, you have shown great mercy to David, my father, and you have made me king in his place. God, you're too much. <laughs> so good to my father. I watched it all those years. And then you've been just as good to me. And now, O oh Lord God, let your promise to David, my father, be established for you have made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. And now he gets to his request. And now to answer your question, Lord, give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people that is function as a king. For who can judge this great people of mine? No, of yours. And so here is this uh, Solomon, he acknowledges his inadequacy for the task that God has called him to. I don't have the knowledge. I do not have the wisdom to to uh, handle this position. Knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is what uh, knowledge is what to do. And the wisdom is how to do it. And, And most questions, major questions in life center around wisdom and knowledge. We know earlier in a record of this, I like that Solomon was essentially saying, listen, Lord, I don't even know how to, in terms of proper protocol, to walk into the throne room and to sit on the throne and then to exit the throne room, much less know how to make a decision on that throne and to be a king. I mean, this is something he's the king and he's being honest with God. God, you know me. You called me. I don't have the wisdom or the knowledge to pull this thing off on any level. Another great lesson related to that. You never have to bluff with God. He already knows what he got. A project. And you never have to bluff with other people. You know, when we get where we get in trouble, where leaders get in trouble, everybody, though, is when there's a fear of being able to say, you know, I don't know. I don't have the slightest idea what to do in in that situation, but I'll take it to prayer and seek the mind of the Lord related to it. Nobody will ever, I don't think, no mature Christian will ever condemn another Christian for not knowing something. If If they agree, I don't know, I'll seek the Lord related to that. But bluffing is out. So this is a beautiful transparency here related to his his life. And so he said, Lord, I don't even know how to pretend to be a king, much less, you know, be a real one. And so this was the request that he made. And basically he's saying, Lord, I need you to give me the wisdom and the knowledge to fulfill your calling on my life. That was his focus, not a material thing. His whole concern was fruitfulness and success. That was his greatest concern and desire for fruitfulness and success in the ministry that God had called him to. And he recognized his greatest needs for that 
was wisdom and understanding, wisdom and knowledge. And so that's the greatest thing. If God ever comes to you and, and were to ask you this in a dream yourself, to look, say the highest thing that you can ask for is, God, I want to be as fruitful and effective in your call upon my life in advancing the kingdom of God in this world. That's the right answer to the question. Because the day is going to come, and, we, and it won't be even after death before we realize it. It'll be late in this life where we'll realize nothing else matters in this world except what God is doing. And was I faithful to that calling? And so this was a beautiful answer again uh, from, from Solomon toward the Lord. And not only was it the right answer and a wonderful answer, but it also blessed the Lord. And so the God said to Solomon, because, that's a reason word, this, this request was in your heart and you have not asked. So God talks about what Solomon could have asked for and didn't ask for, which means these are the things that God has almost always asked for if he may, when he makes this offer here. And so he says, you haven't asked, which is what everybody usually asks for, riches or wealth or honor or the life of your enemies, nor have you asked for long life, but you have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king. Now, there's nothing wrong with asking God for anything and everything. The Lord invites us to ask him for anything and everything in prayer. And then he'll give to us as he decides to give to us. So I'm not saying, and the Bible isn't saying, that we can't ask for healing or that we can't ask for material prosperity. It can't be the thing in our life. It can't be the highest thing in our life. As long as that's supreme, what's supposed to be supreme, then we can ask for anything else uh, after that. And so the Bible, Jesus spoke and he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That is, keep God priority one. And then all of these other things, food, clothing, our necessities will be added unto you. So it's the same promise that's made to Solomon. By the way, also interesting to note, we look at Solomon and say, wow, he got, God came and he asked, are you anything you want? And he asked for wisdom and he asked for knowledge and he got it. Rats, I wish I could have that. We can. James chapter 1, the Lord promises that if any of us as Christians, I don't envy Solomon at all. I don't read the book of, you know, where Solomon's in there and I just kind of smack my lips. And, oh, man, I wish I had. I don't at all. I'm in a new covenant. I'm in a superior covenant, the blood of Christ. And you and I, the Bible says, anytime we lack wisdom, we don't know what to do and how to do in a given situation. We're free to go, James chapter 1, ask the Lord for that wisdom, and he will give us that wisdom. The only thing he doesn't tell us is when he'll give it to us. Sometimes you have to wait for it. I hate waiting. Praise the Lord for synchronized lights that stop places. But, it, but he will give it to us if we wait. He promises that. So, I mean, we're, we're as rich as Solomon in, 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 in this new covenant. We don't even have to be a king in order to have those kind of blessings. And so the wisdom and uh, the Lord spoke to him and said that uh, wisdom and knowledge is granted to you. Verse 12, I, I give you your request. And on top of that, I will give you riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings have had who were before you, nor shall any after you have the like. And so God, when because Solomon's priorities were straight, he added all of these other things too. When our spiritual priorities are are correct and we're seeking first the kingdom of God, God is number one in our life. It allows God to bless us as fully as as he wants to bless us because he realizes we have the spiritual character then handle those blessings, that they won't um, hijack us or derail us from his call upon the life, our life, distract us related to that call. And so I think that whenever this is in the place, I wouldn't, you know, I don't want to go, it's certainly not health and wealth or positive confession or anything like that, but it does allow him to add further uh, blessings in our life, knowing that we won't be, um, 
you know, sidetracked by it. And so Solomon, he came to Jerusalem from the high place that was in, in, at Gibeon. Wow, what a great trip to Gibeon he had from before the tabernacle of meeting. And he reigned over Israel. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. Uh, he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities with the king uh, uh, in Jerusalem. So Solomon begins to, to nation build, basically, here, his own nation, not internationally. So he begins to build the nation, strengthening the military. He buys horses. He buys chariots. Uh, he sets up fortified cities to protect against invasion. Uh, Fourteen hundred uh, chariots for the uh, Israeli uh, defense forces would have been a lot of chariots in those days. Israel has a lot of hills and those kind of things. It doesn't have a, a lot of super amount of flat ground. You know, the Valley of Jezreel, Armageddon is that. So 1,400 chariots would have been considerable number of chariots given the terrain of, of Israel. So he begins to expand and strengthen the national defense. He also made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones. And so uh, that was that uh, says a lot. I mean, you, there's the old story of the two angels that were dispatched by God at the time of creation uh, with to stones to evenly cast the stones over the whole face of the earth. And one angel was faithful and did it, cast all of the stones over the face of the earth. The other one went straight to Israel and dumped the whole load right there in, in Israel. So you go there, there's plenty of rocks. Tourists have been going there for 2,000 years, taking I don't know how many ro you know, uh, pounds of rocks on boats and cars and planes back to their homeland. And there's still plenty of rocks there last time I was there. And so basically what it's saying is the amount of silver and the amount of gold that, that was in Jerusalem and, and the wealth of the nation. I mean, it was just something that you uh, simply uh, you, you couldn't uh, count it in any way, just uh, uncountable. And then he also uh, made cedars as abundant as the sycamores, which are in the lowlands. Cedar trees, very desirable for building in those days. They were insect resistant by uh, naturally, very hard wood, very beautiful wood. Sycamores were kind of a more common tree. And so the more common things were kind of put out of the way. And it was a time of great wealth in the nation. And Solomon had horses imported from Egypt and Kiva. And the king's merchants would buy the horses at Kiva at a current price. And they also acquired and imported from uh, Egypt a chariot for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And thus, through their agents, they exported them to all of the kings uh, of the Hittites and all of the kings of Syria. So he got into kind of the horse trading business. He would buy horses and chariots from Egypt uh, for a price. Uh, train them, get them all fixed up, and then sell them to the kings of the surrounding nations. And so he kind of got into um, uh, uh, this uh, import-export kind of business. Now, the prob obviously, he's making a profit all, off of all of this. In the ancient world, most of how a country became wealth wealthy was by basically invading other countries and taking their wealth. Solomon begins to establish, they've conquered that whole section of the world, so he begins to establish and increase wealth for Israel by uh, tr through the use of trade here. So he gets into all of this. The problem with the whole chariot thing and the horse thing is that he's now violating the law of Moses. God said that the kings were not to multiply horses to themselves because they would then begin to think that the strength of their nation was on the basis of their horses, which were always a part of the military, rather than believing what was true of that nation and any nation, and that is their strength is not in their military, but their strength is in their holiness and their closeness uh, to God. And so God forbade this amassing of horses and going to Egypt to get the horses. And the one thing that Solomon didn't seem to understand, that it wasn't about horses, it was about staying away from Egypt. I mean, God was basically saying, don't get close to Egypt, because if you get close to Egypt, you might not just stop with horses, you might end up with wives, which is exactly what happened to Solomon. 
And, and so often there's that thing. It was in his life where you just look and say, well, I mean, I'm keeping most of the law of Moses. This seems like a small deviation, probably a small deviation in the eyes of the Lord. I'm obeying all of these big things. God is number one. I'm doing this great spiritual thing in the nation. And so this little violation of the law in terms of horses, that can't be any kind of big thing. It's not about horses. It's about the heart of Solomon. And it doesn't matter whether the sin is a big sin or the violation of God's word is a little violation. What it means is, is I am no longer looking at the word of God as the supreme authority for my life. I now believe that I can obey what I want to obey and I can disobey what I want to disobey. And that's okay with God. And it never stops with horses. As with Solomon, it moved on to wives until he had you know, 700 wives and 300 concubines. Is, is, that's the level in which he, he married out, in, again in violation of the law of Moses. So in our own lives, we're no different than Solomon. I love the fact that Solomon is in the Bible, and I don't look at and say, oh, what a riff, spiritual riffraff, what a dopehead. That's not at all. I look at him and I say, I see myself as a descendant of Adam and Eve in this guy. Completely, I'm tempted with the same things that he's tempted, not with a thousand wives and concubines. I'm talking about cutting corners on the word of God. I have the same kind of temptation. Think, well, in all the big things, but this over here. But it's it's the heart. And if I can justify disobedience to what I think is a small area, it will only take a guy like me and Solomon and like you. A matter of hours or days or weeks until we can justify massive sin related to our lives. So this is kind of a, a, a bad thing. It's a little bit of the beginning of the end for Solomon, though God is going to continue to bless him. You know, you look at Solomon and uh, sometimes it, it's easy to look at him and, and say, why did God continue to bless him? In other words, here's obvious disobedience. Why doesn't God just hammer him right on the spot? Why does he bless the dedication and the building of the temple and all of these kind of things? Why does he do that? God is so funny in this way because he will give us enough rope to either make something of it or to hang ourselves with it. Uh, is a figure of speech. And you, you watch what he does. And again, to walk with the Lord for a while, you recognize it, it related to your own life or the, related to the lives of other people. Where God takes and he gives us an opportunity to be successful, to be great for him in this world. And then you watch some people use it to do something fabulous with it. And then somebody else, they end up crashing and burn, burning with that opportunity. You say, why doesn't God just stop them right at the beginning if he knows that that's where they're going to go and all. But he doesn't do it because he's going to give every single person an opportunity to do or not do with that opportunity as they see fit. And so Solomon here, given an opportunity to be one of the greatest kings in the nation, in the history of the nation, and his name is essentially going to end up being mud. And, but what is true of him is also true of us. But it starts here. I'm different. I'm special. I can handle little violations of God's law or God's word, and they don't affect me. And we think it's all about horses. It's not about horses. It's about our attitude that's developed concerning the word of God, and it reflects a distancing of our heart in terms of awe and respect and reverence toward God and toward his word. These are not just pages or words on the page of a book. These are words that come from God Almighty himself. And so it's a reflection on him in terms of how we handle it. So he gets goofed up in all of this, and it was a great mistake. But God continues to show him grace, and Solomon then determined to build a temple for the house for the name of the Lord and a royal house for himself. So now he's going to begin to build the temple in earnest. And Solomon selected 70,000 men for this purpose to bear burdens. This was just common grunt work, labor, 80,000 to quarry stone, to fashion the stone in the mountains for the building of, 
of the temple. It was made of stone, though we'll see it was lined by things much more valuable than that. And then 3,600 men as foremen to oversee this workforce. And so Solomon, he put together labors and the foremen, selected all of that. And then he begins to look to the expertise that he needs and the material resources to build the temple. And so he sent to Hiram, king of Tyre, saying, you have dealt with David, my father, and sent him cedars to build himself a house to dwell in. So deal with me. Now, uh, I don't know what kind of a diet Hiram was on. Uh, kind of the uh, Lebanon, uh, Tyre of Lebanon, uh, lived to 180 diet or something. But he's, he was a good friend of David uh, in that ancient world. All through David's life, he's outlived David and, and now living on into to Solomon's reign. So he's approached uh, as the king of Tyre now uh, it, 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 because there's a friendship relationship already between the families and the nations. And Solomon said, Behold, I am building a temple for the name of the Lord my God to dedicate it to him, to burn incense before him with sweet, uh, to burn before him sweet incense for the continual showbread, for the burnt offering, uh, offerings morning and evening, on the Sabbaths, on the new moons, and on the set feasts of the Lord our God. This is an ordinance forever. In Israel. And so he said, we're building a temple for our God. Hiram was very familiar with the God of Israel from the times of David. And so Solomon is basically saying, now we want to have a dedicated place of worship for the Lord. Now, he says that in verse four, and I think it's fascinating. He talks about this temple being uh, for the name of the Lord. My God, a place to worship the Lord and worship his name. This temple that they were going to build ultimately is it's built. And this is all prescribed by God. It, it's just it's not a gigantic building. It's it's twenty seven hundred square feet inside the building. But when you got to line the whole thing with gold, I mean, it's, it gets expensive. So the beautiful, beautiful building, as we'll see, probably won't get to it this evening. But this this whole building of the temple, Solomon wants to make sure that Hiram, who is probably not a convert convert to Judaism, he's probably a pagan king, that he doesn't realize we're building a temple here in the spirit of how all of the pagan nations built temples to their gods. And that is this is the dwelling place of God, that God lives here in his fullness, in his entirety. He can fit inside of this this temple. He said, no, this temple's being built as a place for us to worship the name of our God. Now, in the uh, Hebrew culture, uh, the name always represents the person. It re represents the nature. So he's saying that this temple that we're going to build is a place that we're going to come and we're going to worship our God. We're going to worship his nature. We're going to worship who he is, what he is, what we know him to be, what he's revealed himself to be. We're going to come and worship his character, who he is. And so this was the purpose of the temple and the temple which I build will be great. This is the purpose for it being great. For our God is greater than all gods. Oh, he might get in prison today for saying something like that so politically incorrect. So the temple in the, in the mind of Solomon was to be great for the simple reason that God is great, the God of Israel, and that he is greater than all and certainly greater than what was uh, wrongly worshipped uh, by the nations that surrounded Israel. And so he speaks again to a king that may or may not have known the Lord at that time. Our God is greater than all gods. Our God is greater than all gods. And some people look at that and they say, well, that's a statement of arrogance for you. You're going to have to work through arrogance and truth. But if it's not if it's the truth, it's not arrogance. It's the truth. And what do you want me to do with the truth? Because if I deny the truth, then you're going to call me a liar. So I've got a choice between liar and arrogant. You're not giving me a lot of choices here on this. It's funny. I keep up with the news a little bit, maybe more than I should. But it's interesting. These 
um, some of the uh, Western nations and Western cultures are just uh, coming to the end of like this 50 year experiment that we've been having going on in the world that I've been watching all of my life. And this idea that all cultures are equal and equally valuable in the world scene, that, that one culture is not superior to another culture. And it's absolute nonsense. You can have the moral character of this person can be almost infinitely greater than the moral character of this person. The kind of human being that this God produces is this kind of a person when you wouldn't want to have as a next door neighbor and you'd keep one eye open all of the time. And then this is the kind of person that the God of the Bible produces. They're not, it's not all equal. All religions are not equal. They're not equally valid. The gods are not, as they're described, are not equally valid. In fact, the Bible teaches that there's only one true God. And all other gods are either a, um, a, a figment of someone's imagination or something that man has come up with or the devil has come up with. There's only one true and living God, and it is the God of the Bible. And here Solomon, again, to be commended early in his reign, that was his stand, even speaking to the nations around him. Our God is greater than all gods. You know, if we cave on this issue and, and the whole idea that all religions are equal, they're all equally valid, they're all, you know, uh, the same, then, I mean, who, who's going to be around for another generation to preach to the next generation the truthfulness of, of the word of God? There is no comparison and, and many of you, if you've been here longer than six months at this church, you know one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is when Jesus speaks. And he said to the, the Jewish religious leaders, speaking to a religious system, what the Jews had turned it into at that time. And he said, wisdom is justified by our children. Wisdom earns the right to be called wisdom on the basis of the kind of human being that wisdom produces. God earns the right to be called a great God on the basis of the quality of person and the kind of person that that God produces. And no one and nothing produces the kind of human being that the God of the Bible produces and that Jesus produces. And Jesus was talking to what the Jewish religious leaders had done in hijacking uh, the Jewish religion away from God. They were nearly as bad as what portrays itself as God in the world today and what it's turning hundreds of millions of people into around the world today. So you don't back off on, on the issue. Our God is a great God. He is the only God. And... And he is worthy of, of our best. It's interesting here when we look at Solomon and, and as he begins to ask for the things that he uh, um, uh, is uh, going to request for the building of the temple. There's so much gold involved, so much silver involved, so much wealth that's involved. It's, uh, he's asking for the finest uh, craftsmen. He asks for the finest of materials. And the whole idea is... It, it was just a way we look at it and we kind of um, today, you know, it, it, 2011 in the United States of America, among Christians, we kind of poo poo the idea a little bit of, uh, you know, buildings being grand and all that kind of thing, a waste of money and these things. I'm not talking about this place. I'm talking about cathedrals in Europe or whatever it might be. So we kind of look at that as a simpler thing because we look at it from a Christian standpoint, from Jesus's eyes. But in those days, the, the whole thing was, was this was a reflection of how we view God. And, and because God is worthy of our best, we're going to give him our best. And for Solomon, that was the building of this temple in this beautiful, luxurious way that he's going to do for us. It's just in the simplicity of what God has called us to do in ministry to say, I'm going to do my very best. I'm not going to serve God sloppy. I'm not going to. 
put up junky ministry so that when the rest of the world looks at me and says that's how Christians think of their God and serve their God, that they come to wrong conclusions about how great and beautiful and wonderful and worthy of the best that we can offer comes. So we don't offer the best that we have to offer in terms of gold and silver these days. And I'm not going to take an offering in a moment. I'm not put, putting down that side of the Christian life. But we offer him in our own personal ministries. I'm going to do what God has called me to do the very best that I know how to do it. That was the heart that was behind all of this. And so he said, but who is able to build him the Lord a temple since heaven and earth, heaven and the heaven of heavens can't contain him. Who am I then that I should build a temple except as a place to burn sacrifice before him? And therefore, send me at once a man skillful to work in gold and silver, in bronze and iron, in purple and crimson and blue. So this guy, he's asking for a worker. You talk about somebody who's very talented, someone that can work in the metals, gold, silver, bronze and iron. I mean, even for somebody to work in gold and then work in bronze and iron, those are very different metals. So that's very fine work and then very uh, coarse work. So he wants someone who's skillful to work in the metals, but then also in fabrics, in purple, crimson, blue, and who has skill then to engrave with skillful men who are with me in Judah and in Jerusalem, whom David, my father, has provided. So he asks for a skilled craftsman who can pull off all of the trades kind of things that's going to be needed in the building of this temple. I mean, this would be a very unique guy that... Uh, would almost need to be specially prepared, and as we're going to see, uh, he definitely was. And then also, please send me uh, cedar, and I put the please in there myself just because I'm more polite than Solomon. Let's go back at verse 8. He said, also send me cedar and cypress and algum logs from Lebanon, for I know that your servants have skill to cut timber in Lebanon, and indeed, my servants will be with your servants to prepare timber for me in abundance for the temple that I am about to build for the temple, which I am about to build shall be great and wonderful. So he's very good. He's very diplomatic. He says, you guys are the best with wood. I'll send laborers up to help you do the heavy labor. But you guys do the fashioning of it. You're the best. And, and they were in the ancient world. And indeed, I will give to your servants Here's what Solomon offered Hiram in exchange. I'll give to your servants, the woodsmen who cut timber, 20,000 cores of ground wheat. That's 125, uh, well, a very large number of, of bushels. 20,000 cores uh, of barley, 20,000 baths of wine. That's 115,000 gallons and also 20,000 uh, baths of olive of oil. That would be olive oil. So it was kind of a food for wood program. And then Hiram, king of Tyre, uh, he answered in writing, which he sent to Solomon. And he said, because the Lord loves his people, he made you king over them. And then he explains himself because Hiram also said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who made heaven and earth. For he has given King David a wise son endowed with prudence and understanding. And then here is the example of that prudence and understanding who will build a temple for the Lord and a royal house for himself. And so here is an older man who recognized that great prosperity uh, in in a the life of a child of God represents an opportunity to do something great for the kingdom of God. And that's how Solomon was choosing to use this season of prosperity in the history of the nation of Israel. And he said, and now I have sent, he agrees to the conditions of, of the request. I've, well, I have sent a skillful man endowed with understanding, Huram, my chief craftsman. So this is the guy that works on my palace. And he is the son of a woman of the daughters of Dan. So his mother was uh, a Jewess and his father was a man of Tyre, skilled to work in gold and silver, bronze, iron, stone and wood, purple and blue. What a resume, fine linen and crimson and to make any engraving and to accomplish any plan which may be given to him with your skillful men and with the skillful men of my Lord David, your father. 
And so he identifies this man. Here's who I'm sending. He is the uh, he is the son of a Jewish mother. He is the son of a Phoenician uh, father who undoubtedly taught him all of these skills. So it's a beautiful kind of thing. You talk, think about a guy being prepared for this because you've got a Jewish background, you've got a Gentile background. And so here's this uh, man who has learned from his Gentile father all of these skills But then from his mother, he has the needed respect for the God of Israel in order to be a part of this project. So pretty special guy. And uh, I have no doubt that prepared by the Lord for such a time as this. And now, therefore, he said, the wheat, the barley, the oil, the wine, which my Lord has spoken of, let him send to his servants. So he agrees to the terms of payment. We will cut wood from Lebanon as much as you need, and we will bring it to you in rafts by sea down the coastline of the Mediterranean to the city of Joppa, and which was the main port in Israel at that time. And, uh, and so we'll bring the wood there, and then it's up to you, Solomon, and your men then to carry it up to Jerusalem, which is 35 miles <laughs> overland. For those who've been on a trip to Israel on that uh, kind of that last day on a typical trip where we're making the trip from the hotel to the airport and driving all through those hills and the mountains and the winding and the up and some down and all of that. That's kind of the path they would have taken to carry all of that wood. That would have been very, very hard work, but they're willing to do it for the project. And so Solomon then numbered all the aliens who were in the land of Israel. And so all of the Canaanites that had been captured in the Parasites or the whoeverites, all of these people that uh, from the lands that David had conquered after they had attacked Israel and they'd been taken captive and all they had settled in Israel. And uh, so all of these uh, kind of foreigners were in the land after the census in which David, his father, had numbered them. There were found to be one hundred and fifty three thousand six hundred of them. And so David um, uh, he didn't uh, or Solomon didn't make them slaves, but they didn't really have a choice in this. And we know from the book of Kings that Solomon took this great labor force, this Gentile labor force, and they worked for four months on the labor project of building the temple. Then they were released for eight months to take care of their homes, raise their crops, continue to supply for themselves. And so it was a thoughtful uh, kind of work pattern that was established for them. And of this 153,600, he made 70,000 of them bearers of burdens, just grunt labor. Uh, 80,000, again, were stone cutters in the mountain. And so this was a, a, a skill uh, that, that uh, the surrounding peoples had. Uh, and 3,600 overseers to, uh, like this, make the people work. So, you know, everybody needs a boss, I guess, and and uh, not everybody. I don't think there's... Uh, some, okay, I'm not going to go. Anyway, no need to live. Uh, okay, so we're going to stop there tonight. And uh, everything's put in place now to begin, then begin formally now to build the temple, which we will pick up. Uh, next week and uh, continue our journey through all of this. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Hmm. Father, thank you for this history that you have provided in your word. And how wonderful it is to be able to look at a history and realize that it's more than a history. It's a study in, in human beings. It's a study of your people. It's a study of how to do right and how to do wrong and the consequences of it. And Lord, all of the lessons that we so desperately need because we're the same descendants of Adam and Eve that everyone else in the world is. And so we thank you for the lessons and the instruction of this passage Tonight, Lord, we thank you for all of the the great heart of Solomon that he had toward you early in his reign and so many with him and then to watch 
such what appeared to be such a small thing begin the undoing of his life, Lord. Thank you for the ability to see both of those things, allow you to search our own lives related to it so that no such trend is in our life at all. Thank you, Lord, for the great privilege that we have of not building some great physical building, as wonderful as that was for Solomon to do, but that as we head out into the week that we're involved in the building up of the temple of the Holy Spirit today, that is the body of Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would anoint our lives as we head out into the world today and that out of our innermost being would flow a torrent of living water, that people would see our lives as different, that you're a God who creates a different kind of person, an attractive person, a holy person, the kind of person that they would want to be made into also, Lord, and that you would then use that to bring glory to your name and to bring them to you. And so we pray, Lord, that you give us that kind of a week in this fallen place called planet Earth this week. Thank you that you have gone out into this week ahead of us, always ahead of us, and that we are able then to follow you into your will and your plan for our lives. Thank you for how rich the blessings are that we have in you, these things that are so much a part of the daily of our lives that we grow so accustomed to, but we never lose our appreciation for it, Lord. Thank you that you've saved us. Thank you that you've got a call and purpose for our lives. Thank you that our lives have meaning. Thank you that our lives are making a difference in this world. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.